This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Michelle Foster, titled Statelessness as a Human Rights Issue, a concept whose time has come. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'd like, like everyone else, to thank Jane, Jeff and Catherine for the very kind invitation to participate in today's proceedings. It's truly an honour and a privilege to be here. Uh, and I'd also really like to, thank, uh, to take the opportunity to thank Guy for his generosity and support of my work, particularly in recent years. And I'm particularly glad that retirement hasn't hampered his enthusiasm for new adventures, uh, and in particular he's agreed to come to Melbourne in September and co-teach refugee law with me, which I'm very excited about. I'd also like to uh, acknowledge the work of my co-author, Professor Elaine Lambert, uh, who has worked with me on today's paper, which in turn is broadly connected to our current book project on international refugee law and the protection of stateless persons to be published in 2017. So the protection of stateless persons has long been understood as a challenge for the international community, yet for many of the past 60 years, a prioritised focus on refugees has dominated, indeed arguably eclipsed, the plight and protection needs of stateless persons. As Guy has observed, there is an irony in that, as he said, refugees and stateless persons once walked hand in hand. After the First World War, their numbers and condition were almost coterminous, and post-World War II, the intention, as many of you would be aware, um, had been to draft a single convention for the protection of stateless persons and refugees. However, the consignment of a protection regime for stateless persons, first to an annex and ultimately to excision from the Refugee Convention, undoubtedly contributed to a lack of concentrated effort to address the plight and protection needs of stateless persons. And this is so notwithstanding the subsequent formulation of the Convention on the Status of Stateless Persons in 1954 and the Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness in 1961. Guy has long argued for a refocus of international attention and effort on the plight, predicament and protection needs of stateless persons. Indeed, in a seminal contribution over two decades ago, he observed that at that time, statelessness was perceived by many as a mere technical problem involving the potential remedy of harmonisation of laws and coordination of rules, and hence, as he put it, lacking the fashionable touch. In his view, however, the tragedy is that few commentators or practitioners, at least at the time, looked beyond to the underlying human rights issues, his central thesis being that statelessness is indeed a broad human rights issue, even as it retains a distinct technical dimension. He argued that at that time, decades ago, the international community had evolved to a level of sophistication such that the time was right for a reconceptualisation of the problem of statelessness. So in this contribution, we examine the challenge set by Guy for the international community, namely the need for greater recognition and protection of stateless persons, in light of the developments over the more than two decades that have passed since his incisive analysis. The challenges that Guy identified can be divided really into three, factual, institutional and jurisprudential or doctrinal. I'll touch on the first two and hope to spend a bit more time on the third. So turning to the first, a factual challenge, a simple yet profoundly important observation made by Guy in the early 90s was that, quote, no one knows how many stateless people there are in the world, and that this paucity of information is due to the absence of serious attention to their plight by any international organisation. 
Accordingly, his first key recommendation was that, to quote, the constituency must be known. More than two decades later, this challenge remains an acute one. Now, of course, the UNHCR estimates that there are about 10 million stateless persons in the world, but acknowledges that this is very much an estimate. Indeed, one of the UNHCR's recently adopted 10 key actions required to eradicate statelessness is to improve quantitative and qualitative data on stateless populations. The extent of the challenge is highlighted in the UNHCR's starting point for achieving this action item, namely that quantitative population data on stateless populations is currently publicly available for only 75 states. As the UNHCR observes, stateless persons frequently are not only undocumented, but are also ignored by authorities and not counted in national administrative registries and databases or in population censuses. For example, in Australia, a country that has a very well-regarded National Bureau of Statistics, I was recently quite surprised to discover that we don't at all count uh, or ever collect information on whether anyone's stateless. In fact, Australia routinely reports to the UNHCR that there are zero stateless persons in Australia, and yet when you look at detention statistics, you see that there are, in fact, thousands. So that's just one example in a very developed country that, as I say, has you know, quite well-regarded uh, statistic collection agencies. Now, this is not to say that progress hasn't been made. Uh, there is increasing attention, including from within the academic research community, to issues of statelessness, and hence much more is known about specific stateless populations. The work of organisations such as the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion has been key in highlighting gaps in UNHCR statistics and in identifying the challenges associated with quantifying statelessness. And the work of regional networks such as the European Network on Statelessness has been crucial to highlighting the issue and its scope and facilitating coordinated efforts of prevention and remedy. Clearly, however, this does remain a pertinent and crucial challenge to the protection of stateless persons globally. So, turning to the second key challenge, institutional. Uh, the second key recommendation that was put forward by Guy again in the early 90s was that effective protection of the rights of stateless persons, to quote, must be entrusted to an appropriate international agency in a mandate that goes beyond the essentially reactive and non-functional tasks so far conferred about on, upon the UNHCR. And it's amazing that this statement was made in 1994 um, and yet just a year later the UNHCR in fact was given explicit authority uh, to look after stateless persons. And so the work of the UNHCR since that time has been very substantive. But just to reflect back on why it was only in 1995, well, UNHCR's responsibilities to address statelessness um, were, of course, initially limited just to stateless persons who were refugees. In particular, the 1954 Stateless Convention, designed to provide a status for stateless persons and hence largely modelled on the 51 Convention, doesn't repose supervisory authority in the UNHCR in the same way as Article 35 of the Refugee Convention does. However, as I said, in December 1995, the UNHCR was finally entrusted with responsibilities for stateless persons generally as part of its statutory function. So as a result of this, the landscape has been significantly transformed, largely due to the impetus given to statelessness as an issue worthy of study and focus by the UNHCR, particularly over the past decade. In particular, the 50th anniversary of the 61 Convention in 2011 and the 60th anniversary of the 54 Convention in 2014 together provided an opportunity for focusing international attention on this historically overlooked issue. And as many of you are probably aware, the UNHCR organised and hosted a ministerial-level conference where states affirmed the importance of the conventions and made a range of specific uh, statelessness pledges, including to accede to or take steps to accede to the conventions. But as a result of these initiatives, ratifications have increased at an exponential rate. For example, Guy observed that in the late 80s, the 54 Convention had just 36 ratifications, while the 61 Convention had 15. But by contrast, in 2016, the 54 Convention has 86 parties, with one quarter of the total number having exceeded just since 2011, 
while the 61 Convention has 65 parties and more than half of those that have acceded since 2011. And of course the UNHCR has spearheaded important developments in principle, specifically from 2010. They've organised a series of high-level expert meetings which have led to the rapid development of a series of guidelines on key doctrinal issues. In arguably its most ambitious initiative to date in this area, in 2014 the UNHCR launched its Global Action Plan to End Statelessness by 2024. Uh, and the program aims to eradicate statelessness by resolving existing situations and preventing the emergence of new cases. So I turn now to the third key challenge, which really was the core of, of uh, the article that I'm referring to from the early 90s, which is related to jurisprudential or doctrinal gaps. And at the time, Guy lamented that there was at that time insufficient analysis, recognising that both the causes and effects of statelessness may implicate human rights issues. And that this manifested in various ways, including in a failure to recognise that some stateless situations may give rise to qualification for refugee status. And I'll focus on three points. The first is acquisition. So beginning with acquisition of nationality, while it's still the case that states, of course, do enjoy considerable discretion in formulating their own domestic rules for the acquisition of nationality, there's no question that their discretion in the granting and withdrawal of nationality um, has come to be restrained by numerous prohibitions in international and regional human rights treaties, particularly regarding discrimination. The right to a nationality proclaimed in Article 15 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, has found its way into binding obligations, particularly in relation to the specialised human rights instruments, for example, pertaining to children, women and persons with disabilities. And indeed, there are some positive obligations. For example, the 1961 Convention um, obligates states to grant nationality to persons bo born uh, on the territory who would otherwise be stateless, as does the American Convention on Human Rights. However, it must be acknowledged there's still gaps. Uh, there's very few treaties that do impose positive obligations, um, and hence a person may have a right to a nationality, but finding the corresponding state that has the duty to recognise that is still a challenge in many situations. One of the more intriguing arguments that Guy made in the early 90s, at least it was intriguing to me, was that the principles governing acquisition of nationality needed to be strengthened, well, that's not necessarily intriguing, but that the notion of effective nationality was integral to this development. And in what I think is quite an innovative argument, he suggested that the criteria put forward by the ICJ in the Notbom case to assess an individual's genuine connection with the state in a context of diplomatic protection may have relevance in a different context. So if you recall, that case was about working out when a state could properly exercise diplomatic protection, the argument being that if there wasn't a genuine connection between the individual and that state, it wasn't an effective nationality and therefore the state was constrained in its ability to exercise diplomatic protection. And that criteria was very much, as I say, about effectiveness. To quote from the court, it was about a social fact of attachment, a genuine connection of existence, interests and sentiments. But Guy flipped that around and said, well, perhaps that criteria should be used to assess when a state has positive obligations in relation to a person, presumably, that's within their territory. And he said that, in fact, where those factors exist, that social fact of attachment, that the state may be bound by other incidental obligations, such as that of non-expulsion, readmission, and a certain standard of treatment. And we argue in this piece that although not explicitly relying on Guy's work, or indeed not bomb, <laughs> jurisprudential developments in international and regional human rights law actually mirror this argument about effective nationality. And there's two examples. So the first is in relation to Article 12.4 of the ICCPR, which provides the right to return to one's own country. Now, clearly on its face, that's broader than country of nationality. And, of course, in its 1999 general comment, the Human Rights Committee confirmed that the right to enter his own country goes beyond the right of entry to one's country of nationality. It also applies to anyone who has, quote, special ties or claims in relation to a given country, 
For example, stateless persons have been unlawfully deprived of or denied the nationality of that country. And in Nystrom in 2011, the committee acknowledged that there are factors other than nationality which may establish close and enduring connections between a person and a country, connections which may be stronger than those of nationality. In that case, the committee took into account the strong ties connecting Nystrom to Australia. He was a non-national of Australia, but he had very strong ties, including the presence of his family in Australia, the language he speaks, and the duration of his stay in that country. And I think, in fact, analogous reasoning can be found in the European Court of Human Rights approach to assessing the legality of deportation of long-term residents against Article 8's protection against unjustified interference with the right to family and private life, emphasising the private life dimensions more explicitly in recent cases as opposed to just the family life provisions or protections. The Court has found private life to be implicated in Slovenko and Latvia, for example, where the applicants would be removed from the country where they had developed uninterruptedly since birth the network of personal, social and economic relations that make up the private life of every human being. And in Maslow and Austria, the court noted that the right to private life, quote, also protects the right to establish and develop relationships with other human beings in the outside world and can sometimes embrace aspects of an individual's social identity. It thus encompasses the totality of social ties between, in that case, settled migrants and the community in which they're living. Now, of course, we all know these are qualified, not absolute rights. Um, but I nonetheless think that it shows the guy's uh, prediction uh, that a principle akin to effective nationality would bind states in important ways, and I think that has proved present. So the second jurisprudential point that I'll talk about is arbitrary deprivation, including uh, arbitrary deprivation of nationality, including as persecution. Now, protection against arbitrary deprivation of nationality is found in a range of human rights instruments, including, again, the 1961 Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness. And in a 2009 UN Secretary-General report to the Human Rights Council, it was stated that the prohibition of arbitrary deprivation of nationality has become a principle of customary international law. The scope of the prohibition rests on the interpretation of arbitrariness and deprivation of nationality. Deprivation of nationality refers generally to situations of withdrawal of citizenship, including loss, as well as denial of access to nationality. And arbitrariness goes beyond unlawfulness, as it does in many other areas of human rights law, to cover standards of justice or due process and, of course, non-discrimination. Now, the application of these principles to individual situations has been explored in a series of important cases by particularly regional human rights courts, including the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights, which in some cases have found domestic citizenship laws to violate human rights norms, particularly in relation to non-discrimination. But perhaps of most interest to this audience is that the concept that states don't retain absolute discretion in their nationality laws has translated into the understanding that arbitrary deprivation of nationality may amount to persecution for the purposes of refugee law. Now, it's true that in many cases that Elaine and I have been focusing on, uh, the courts won't necessarily consider the deprivation alone to be sufficient. They'll say, well, the deprivation is not great, but what, what follows from that? What are the consequences of that deprivation? But in a series of US decisions, which we don't necessarily always point to US decisions as being the most progressive, but there's some very interesting decisions um, that have, have affirmed that regardless of the practical ramifications that befall a denationalised person, the inherent qualities of denationalisation are troubling, to say the least. In fact, in support of its conclusion that arbitrary deprivation of nationality could alone amount to persecution, the Sixth Circuit of the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit quoted from the US Supreme Court which has described denationalisation in a non-refugee context as a form of punishment more primitive than torture, and that its essence is, to quote, the total destruction of the individual status in organised society, 
because the expatriate has lost the right to have rights, to borrow from Hannah Arendt, which actually the court didn't, but um, clearly <laughs> indirectly. Uh, now, this clearly is an evolving issue, and in fact, it's one that Helen and I are focusing on in some depth in our book. Uh, but I think it, it really does support Guy's emphatic statement decades ago that stateless persons were not to be ignored as refugees, and that, in fact, is, is really the heart of the argument in our book. Finally, however, I know I'm painting a very positive picture here, but I think we have to note that these developments are not linear. Rather, a series of recent domestic legislative developments designed to strip citizenship from so-called homegrown terrorists presents a contemporary threat to the otherwise positive trend away from arbitrary deprivation of citizenship. Legislation granting or strengthening government's ability to revoke the citizenship of suspected foreign fighters has been introduced in a range of jurisdictions, including Australia, Canada and the UK. Now, an extensive analysis of these developments is a whole separate paper, and so clearly beyond the scope of this contribution. But we do, in our paper, identify some specific concerns, including inadequate safeguards for preventing statelessness, overly broad criteria for permitting deprivation of citizenship, and I think a trend towards a focus on back to sort of technical aspects of nationality as opposed to a full appreciation of the human rights implications of these practices. So I'll just make three key points if I have the time. Uh, first, while some legislation, such as that in Canada and Australia, permits revocation only where the person concerned is a dual national, the UK legislation allows for the Secretary of State to strip someone of their British citizenship, even where this would render them stateless, relying on the Article 83 exception in the 1961 Convention. However, even where the legislation on its face won't result in statelessness, the practical effects may be different. Now, in Canada, which, by the way, uh, Canada has declared recently it's going to appeal, but at the moment, the minister must at least have reasonable grounds to believe that the person is a citizen of another country uh, before pursuing revocation. However, such a precaution is absent from the recently enacted Australian provisions. So while the Australian legislation does theoretically only apply to dual nationals, there's actually nothing in the legislation or any guidance in the background materials as to how the Australian government will investigate whether or not a person is a dual national. In fact, the Minister is not required to make that assessment. Combined with the fact that the Australian legislation introduces the notion of constructive renunciation, that is, that a person, including a child as young as 14, is deemed to have announced their, renounced their citizenship immediately upon engaging in relevant conduct, there is, I think, a genuine risk that Australian nationals will be rendered stateless under these new provisions, even though on their face they seem to only apply to dual nationals. Second, the wider international law, especially human rights law implications of such legislation, has been inadequately addressed, or at least acknowledged, I think, by states in uh, passing such legislation. And many of you will be aware that in his more recent work, Guy has observed that in the UK context, while the legislation is said to be justified on, based on the eight, uh, Article 83 exception, the consequences of such act uh, may well have implications in international law beyond the statelessness issue. So, for example, a state may not deprive an individual of nationality for the sole purpose of expelling him or her. Neither may a state refuse to readmit an individual who is stripped of his or her nationality whilst abroad, because to do so, to quote Guy, would be in breach of, for example, the UK's obligations towards a receiving state. And, of course, deprivation of citizenship may also impact the right to respect to private and family life and also implicate Article 12.4 of the ICCPR, which is, I've already outlined what that's about. And the third concern, I mean, there's probably many others, but the third key concern that we focus on is that some procedural requirements have been insufficiently protected by states, in particular to ensure that the deprivation is not arbitrary. So returning to the Australian amendments, as I mentioned, a person is deemed to renounce his or her citizenship merely upon engaging in conduct. So the renunciation 
occurs immediately on, on a certain act having been carried out. Now, the minister is required to give or make reasonable attempts to give written notice to the person to let them know that they've in fact ceased to be an Australian citizen because, of course, it's just declaratory. They cease to be a citizen by virtue of their own act. But the minister has to attempt reasonably to give a notice. Um, but, of course, that reasonable attempt may not be successful since the provisions only apply where the conduct is engaged in outside Australia or where the person has already left Australia. So that actually only applies to people who are literally outside the country. Um, and in addition, the notice requirement doesn't even apply in certain circumstances. Now, the minister may make a determination to rescind such a notice and to exempt the person from the consequences of their conduct, but the minister is not required to consider whether to exercise the discretion or to take any particular matters into account. There's no judicial review or any kind of review prior to revocation. The only possibility of review is seeking judicial review in the High Court, uh, but that is uh, of limited effectiveness and probably not very realistic for most people. So, in conclusion, much has been achieved. Uh, I think Guy's insightful analysis of the problem of statelessness as a human rights issue is still very much relevant today. The number of accessions to the two main human rights treaties relevant for dealing with statelessness have increased significantly, as I said, due to UNHCR's leading role. But this doesn't necessarily translate into uh, things actually improving on the ground. In fact, there remain very few domestic stateless determination procedures in place, there's still a very large number of nationality laws that blatantly violate norms of non-discrimination. Having said that, when we consider the number of landmark judgments delivered by international and regional human rights courts, particularly concerning arbitrary deprivation of nationality, evolving refugee law jurisprudence at some point, resolutions and reports to the UN Human Rights Council, and just in general renewed international and institutional attention, I think we can conclude that statelessness as a human rights issue, as Guy foreshadowed, is a concept whose time has come. Thank you.